0: Welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that I'm hosting for the Middle Eastern Studies series, Nadim Bawalsa. Nadim just published a book with Stanford University Press, Transnational Palestine, Migration and the Right of Return before 1948. So, tens of thousands of Palestinians migrated to the Americas in the final decades of the 19th century, and so, at the beginning of the 20th. In fact, by 1936, it is estimated that nearly 40,000 Palestinians lived outside geographic Palestine. So, Transnational Palestine is the first book to explore the history of Palestinian immigration to Latin America, but also the struggles Palestinian migrants faced to secure Palestinian citizenship in the interwar period, and the ways in which these challenges contributed to the formation of a Palestinian diaspora and to the emergence of a Palestinian national consciousness. The author, Nadim Bawasa, considers the migrant strategies for economic success in the diaspora, for preserving their heritage, and for resisting British mandate legislation, which essentially, in 1925, prevented all Palestinians abroad to claim Palestinian citizenship. And these Palestinians reacted. And they did so through newspaper, through the creation of social and cultural clubs and associations, through political organizations and committees, but of all through the writing of hundreds of petitions and pleas, which were delivered to local and international governing bodies, including the newly created League of Nations. So this book shows that Palestinian political consciousness developed a zafariably transnational process in the first half of the 20th century, and the first articulation of a Palestinian right of return emerged well before 1948. Before we're going to talk about uh, your work and your book, Nadim, welcome.
1: Thank you Roberto, thank you for having me.
0: Nadim, the first question I want to ask is about really Yourself and so, can you tell us something about your background and the origins of uh, of the book Transnational Palestine? Absolutely. Uh, so uh,
1: I, uh, I identify as Palestinian, Palestinian Jordanian. Uh, I was born in in Jordan to uh, Palestinian parents. Uh, the interesting thing is is the, that while my father. My father's family traces their roots back to Karak, on the east bank of the Jordan River. Um, my grandfather did the odd thing in the early 40s of uh, moving to Bethlehem from Karak. Um, he'd been working with the the, the Arab army under the uh, Basha's regime in Jordan, and he was assigned... Um, to work in, in in a Bethlehem outpost, so we he moved there and raised my father and his seven siblings in in Bejala, just uh, beside Ramallah. Uh, excuse me, Bethlehem, and uh, so my father was always identified as Palestinian culturally, even though our last name comes from this side of 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 the river. When I say this side, I am currently in Jordan. So, um, so but my mom's family is sort of squarely, uh, within the sort of the J- Jerusalem Ramallah intellectual elite. So, uh, you know, Palestine has always been part of, of the fabric of our household, whether my mom and dad or my grandmother, who was a big part of my upbringing, um, who's from the Nasser family, uh, my mom's family, the Said family. So, uh, you know, sort of very aristocratic, uh, English-educated Palestinians, um, who suffered tremendously during 48 and then 67 and so on. So it was very much part of my upbringing in, in, in many ways. Um, uh, as for the origins of the book, um, this was part of a dissertation project that I started in 2011. Uh, I had just started my PhD at NYU in 2010, and a year later I went to the State Archives in Jerusalem to... Uh, uh, sort of do preliminary dissertation research to see what I could come up with. the The initial goal or or hope was to find. Uh, my 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 focus during the masters and the first uh, year of, of of PhD research was more autobiographical sources, so looking at diaries and journals and letters and memoirs and so on, from Palestinian intellectuals in the early twentieth century, like Khalil Sakakini, and so on. So I wanted to go. Uh, to Jerusalem, to try to piece together a more uh, um, a more robust intellectual history that wasn 't necessarily religious and wasn 't necessarily about nationalism, so sort of what were Palestinians thinking and saying outside of um, you know the sort of the nationalist circles and uh, It struck me that autobiographical sources would be the place to to find that information um, so I went to the state archives and i and I found a few you know sort of letters and and so on but they really weren't saying much. And after a few weeks in the archives, and I was quite, quite frustrated at that point, because my my research was coming to an end. Um, a friend uh, of mine who was in the PhD program with me, Frederick Mayten, uh who's currently at the University of New Hampshire, uh, was also a professor of, of a historian of, of, of Palestine. Uh, he, he was also with me at the archive and he came up to me one, one afternoon and said, "Nadim, could you take a look at this document? I, I think I understand it, but it's written in Arab, handwritten in Arabic. But I think it says 1927 at the top. And uh, this definitely says Centro Social Palestino de Monterrey, Mexico. Uh, so the Palestinian uh, Social uh, Center of Monterrey, Mexico, 1927. So. It struck us both that what is this document? Why are there Palestinians in Mexico in the 20s? And why, are, why did they form a center? And they had letterhead printed in Arabic and Spanish. Um, and what was this document about? So, uh, you know, it's not easy to read handwritten Arabic from, you know, 100 years ago. But I managed to decipher that uh, it was, in fact, a, uh, a petition written to the, uh, to the British government of Palestine... Uh, in Arabic, uh, it was demanding redress for uh, the British government having denied applications of several Palestinian migrants in Mexico, denied their applications for Palestinian citizenship uh, a few months prior to that petition. So I thought that was very interesting and I thought, well, this is clearly a topic that's never been written about, uh, you know, and my years of graduate work I'd never heard of um mm. Palestinian activists in Mexico in the 20s, trying to go back to Palestine as Palestinian citizens. Um, so, I, I, the box where my friend Frederick found that document, uh, there were several more similar documents written in Arabic, English, uh, uh, Spanish, and even French uh, from Palestinians all over the Americas, including Cuba, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Guatemala, Chile. Um, Honduras, uh, of course, the United States, and the bigger hubs in South America, Argentina, Brazil, and uh, Chile. So all these Palestinians, these sort of networks of Palestinian activists were engaging in this transnational uh, sort of political activism, uh, demanding uh, their rights to Palestinian citizenship from British authorities, British mandate authorities in the 20s. So this is how the book came to be a project, Uh, sorry, sorry, the project uh the top this is how i found the topic and this is how i moved away from that sort of intellectual history to something i thought was much more original much more uh new so sub- in subsequent years i went to england and then to the british archives in london and then to uh the biblioteca Nacional in in santiago in chile which had uh, the largest number of sources related to this period um the 20s and 30s and i managed to piece together uh, what's really a story of a struggle to return that started in the 1920s and not 1948.
0: Before I move to the next question, I just want to say that uh, your book actually struck a particular chord with myself and my work. Um, a long time before you actually started your work, when I was uh, you know, looking for material related to the Navy Musa riots of 1920, I remember bumping into boxes of this uh, Comité de Hijos de Palestina from Mexico and other parts of Latin America petitioning and complaining about the events. And in fairness, I didn't know exactly what to make of all of those documents. I thought they were like uh, just individuals who lived abroad and, uh, you know, cared about their land. But uh, other than that, I closed the boxes. And it was a pleasure to actually to understand and read your material and, and see that there's an entire world behind those petition and those letters. And, uh, uh, you know, for me, it was like uh, a sort of a lesson learned that sometimes it's worth following through instead of just dismissing, because I feel like, who are these Palestinians writing in Spanish, right? And must be some, you know, just a few individuals. But actually, it turns out there were a lot more. Let me ask something about uh, the beginning and the end of your book. So both the starts and the ends really are about personal stories. And I was wondering if you can give us a taste of them and also how do these stories relate to your narrative?
1: So as, a, as I mentioned, you know, in the first question, uh, you know, in terms of my, my own mode of identification, let's say, um, you know, I've, I've never lived in, in Palestine, uh, yet I've never not, Def, identified as Palestinian, and this is really sort of the the crux of the book is that you uh, you might be a stateless national for eternity, but you will always somehow feel connected to this history, whatever it is, wherever it is. And so, well, we know exactly where it is; it's it's historic geographic Palestine. But um, our inability to go there and and lay claims to it, whether it's to territory, property, or a, a a right to reside and stay. Um, is very much connected to to why we continue to identify as Palestinians this is what I realized from from, from all these years of research um, and you know for most historians how many of us get to connect with the source material so personally you know so this um, it struck me as important to connect to this material personally and to explain to the readers why this topic was so important for me personally. Um and so so to 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 realize that there were Palestinians across the Americas a hundred years ago who, like myself um are barred from return but feel strongly connected to this 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 land and this mode of identification was was something very moving uh for me so I decided to to introduce that to introduce the book that way with with the prologue um you know, I get into my childhood and what it means to have grown up. In Jordan, uh, mostly in Jordan, but we we moved quite a bit. Uh, identifying as Palestinian, but carrying a Jordanian passport, living in a country uh, that uh, you know, while does recognize Palestine, Palestine, and of course we're allowed to speak about it and so on. We 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 don't really question the narrative of Jordan and Palestine. How we how they came to be separate being entities when they never should have been, so to speak, um, and the fact that my last name is from this side of the river, the east bank, meaning that makes me Jordanian and not Palestinian. So all these things uh, sort of influenced the way I, I decided to frame this book and 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 structure it from start to finish. Um, the uh, you know the sort of trajectory of 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 cementing this connection to and a mode of identification that is unequivocally Palestinian in spite of uh, all forces around you about around us that tell us otherwise that uh, no you are not you are jordanian or no you're not you're an american citizen or you're chilean or so on so uh, i started the book with with that sort of anecdote and then ended it with something that actually happened it wasn't apocryphal but um it was one of the last times i'd gone to jerusalem to attend an uncle's funeral in Beit Hanina. And uh, I, I enter uh, Israel on my U.S. passport, which I acquired as a teenager through my American stepfather. So that's how I go, which is another element of, you know, I can, go, I can go to Palestine as a U.S. tourist on a three-month visa. I'm not recognized as someone returning, someone from there. So that was also another level of sort of existential, um angst, let's say, whenever I go, I go as a US citizen. But anyway, um, I was sitting at, at this funeral and the woman came up to me uh, to say, you look very familiar. Are you Yusuf Balas's son? And I said, yes, I am. She said I was his neighbor growing up in Bejala and I and I knew it had to be you and so on. So anyway, I get to talking to this woman and uh, she asks what I'm doing. And this is in a funeral and it's supposed to be somber and so on. And I tell her about my research and and so on. Um, and that i had just been to chile and and she said oh my brother lives there but i haven't been and it's too far it's so on she says uh, you know she says, but wow there's there's really that many bajalis so residents of Bajala and talahmes residents of bitlahim and sawahre you know residents of Sahur, that live in chile and i was telling her just how sort of palpable the Palestinian-ness of these communities was in Chile. And there was this something really beautiful that happened in this very somber setting. Uh, and I thought, you know, it's what a nice way to end the book that, yes, this is a sad story. And yes, we continue to live with, with tremendous sadness and, and loss when it comes to Palestine, but also when we find each other wherever it is, whether, you know, in Palestine or the Andes, uh, like I discovered through my research, there is this, you know, Intangible warmth that uh, that brings us uh, great joy, I would say, and sort of and relief that hey, at least we're not, you know, lost forever just because we don't have a state, or at least we, um, we still have ways to connect with one each other, with one with with one another, and establish these uh, transnational connections. There's also something nice about having a book that went all over the globe, you know, sort of. Yes, Jerusalem and Palestine in the, in, in the 1910s and teens when Palestinians were leaving and then, uh, you know, sort of the seat of the British Empire in England and what was happening there and then all the way to Mexico and so on. And then to have the book end by coming back to, to Palestine um, wow. was also somehow a nice way to, to frame and close the book. I thought, and and I was worried, to be honest, to, to start an academic text with, and to start and end an academic text with personal reflections. And I thought the publishers wouldn't go with it. But in fact, they all said, "Well, this is really fresh and different. Uh, let's uh, let's let's take a risk and see what happens."
0: <laughs> I think the publisher were absolutely right in uh, suggesting that this was a, a refreshing starting and ending with personal story but now let's go back to the book and you know transnational palestine is uh, about palestinian immigration to latin america and i was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about who these migrants were and more importantly why did they choose uh, latin america
1: of course uh, so this is how i start the book um, like most books on migration and diaspora studies, it's important to situate uh, migrants' narratives within the, sort of the larger political, socioeconomic context. Uh, so, several historians have written about the out migration of, of Ottoman Arabs or Ottoman Arabic. Arabic-speaking Ottomans or Arabic-speaking Ottoman Syrians or however you would uh, classify them. So um, what we really need to, to, to stress is that the history of Palestinian migration from Palestine to the Americas or westward was never disconnected from that of the Lebanese Assyrians, uh, mm-hmm. anyone else from the Eastern Mediterranean when it was undivided Greater Syria. Uh, so, starting in around eighteen in the eighteen sixties, uh, you know, once the, the the first boats full of Middle Eastern migrants started uh, setting off westward, Palestinians were always part of these out migrations, but their numbers were always uh, less significant than those of the Lebanese and Syrians, and this is for different reasons, but mostly because the southern province of Syria was was, uh, as we know, ge- geographic Palestine was sort of less. Uh, uh, economically uh, significant as as the ports of Beirut or or, or the, the the bigger cities like Damascus and Aleppo but Palestinians were nonetheless always part of of these uh, greater waves of migration it's just about locating them in the historical record and trying to parse out when are they Syrians as greater Syria as, as residents of greater Syria and when do they become how do we know that they're Palestinian and, um, in, in this historical narrative so that was that was the big part of the book but um, going back to the reasons for migration uh, as with migrants from the entire region this is this is mostly economic and political so um, you know towards the end of, of Ottoman rule in the region so starting you know 1870s 1880s until uh, 1920 or so 1914 with the start of the world war um, you know the Ottoman Empire was 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 struggling with with economically and sort of keeping up with with the West. This had, <coughs> excuse me, this had uh, serious consequences for residents of the of the Empire uh, who were stretched thin mm-hmm. um, uh, economically. So famine, droughts, um, you know, sort of political unrest, social unrest, inter uh, inter you know sectarian strife was leading uh, to out-migration, mostly of Christians of middle, lower socioeconomic classes. Um, the So as this out-migration was taking place, uh, the question of where to go was also an important, an important one. So while the Lebanese and Syrians had sort of formed the first networks and the first uh, settlement hubs in the Americas, by the time Palestinians started to, to migrate as well, they were connecting with these communities upon arrival, let's say in Veracruz in Mexico or Buenos Aires or Rio de Janeiro or uh, Santiago. They were connecting with these other Arabic speaking migrants, at the Lebanese and Syrians and so on, receiving credit lines from them and then venturing into you know, the American Wild West or in, into, the, into the interior of the continents. Uh, selling essentially holy land items like uh, you know olive wood crucifixes and mother of pearl and uh, olive oil and so on, uh, where they went is really a function of how saturated those markets had already been by others by other Arabic speaking migrants. Uh, so the larger hubs like Santiago and and uh, well let's say Sao Paulo or uh, Buenos Aires. Uh, Mexico City, were, were seen as more uh, competitive. And so it, it wouldn't have made sense, or nor would it have been wise for a Palestinian who considered themselves um well it was mostly men at this in this early stage, so a Palestinian who would have a migrant who would have considered himself to be also Syrian to go and compete with his neighbor who was from Damascus or Beirut and so on, uh, which would harm both of them so uh, Cecilia Beza who's a political scientist and, and has done some historical research on this period, uh, calls this suicidal concurrence uh, the idea of uh, settling where the market had been saturated by by fellow compatriots who were selling similar goods and so on would be harmful to both. So what they did was settle these hinterlands, these areas that hadn't been tapped yet, these uh, parts of the Chilean Andes that no one thought uh, would be uh, marketable. So, But for these Palestinian communities who were largely from Bejala, Bethlehem and Bethlehem and, and Beth Sahur, uh these migrants arrived um, harrowingly, across the Andes from the from the Argentinian side, trekked through the Andes up on mules, arrived on the other side, and found a land that looked tremendously similar to, to Palestine—the hills, the, the dry air, um, the, the 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 very temperate climate, very similar to Palestine's. And I found this 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 in the sources as well. Uh, Palestinians sort of. <laughs> Uh, speaking to each other about how attractive Chile is uh, for Palestinians specifically because of how much it resembles the southern Syrian uh, coastal climate. Um, So this is why they chose these sort of more or less uh, developed parts of the Americas, uh, both for geographic and topographic and climactic similarity, and also because of Uh, Economic uh, reasons. Uh, As for northern Mexico, that was another uh, reason why they chose uh, those sort of the northern Mexican belt of settlements from uh, Monterrey, Saltillo, uh, uh, where else? Oh my gosh. I'm forgetting the names, but anyway, across the northern, <laughs> corridor, northern dry desert corridor of Mexico, proximity to the U.S. border was very important for these early mor- migrants as well. There was a, a sense that if they entered at Mexico, which was easier to enter than the United States at New York, if they entered at Veracruz, Cruz, they would get a credit line from other Arabic-speaking migrants, enter the 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 Mexican continent by foot, pedal, sell goods, and then hopefully get. To cross into the United States through El Paso, and many did, but of course, those who didn't chose to stay, and they became quite affluent uh, merchants. Um, and of course, the northern uh, sort of terrain of Mexico is the one that would be most similar to that of, of the region, having you know having a dry climate, uh, uh, a desert uh, with 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 highlands as well. So. Uh, this is the story of, of the sort of the migration patterns of settlement and, and the reasons for, for, for leaving. The other reason for leaving, just to go back to one of the other push factors that drove so many to leave, was the Ottoman uh, conscription of non-Muslims into the Ottoman army on the, on the eve of the First World War. So this is why we see such a huge number of, of Christians from these provinces of greater Syria migrating westward, uh, fleeing Ottoman conscription. <laughs>
0: Now that you tackle the question of geography and also the question of migrants, I wanted to ask you something about uh, this idea of uh, transnational history uh, of Palestine. And what does it mean in in your own words? And also, can you give us a sense uh, about uh, the sources that you have used for your book?
1: Sure. So, you know, family members asked me any transnational, what does transnational mean? Why don't you just call it international? Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and they said, you know, it just sounds like you want to be academic and overly intellectual, uh, you know, to, to an extent, maybe because, as we know, transnational is becoming um, a more, let's say, a sexy term to use in, in, in historical studies, you know, transnational history. Uh, you know the idea of studying historical periods from the lens of of the globe rather than just one geographic confined ge- geography um, is something really really exciting and also challenging meaning you have to go to several places to piece together this this history um, rather than one single archive for example but the other the other important thing about why transnational not international I think is 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 an important distinction i mean if you just look at the words you know international is mean essentially between nations or coming you know sort of bringing two things together whereas transnational is, is across so the idea that palestine goes across borders uh outside of geographic historic palestine the land between the river and the sea and that this history can be found before 48 or before uh uh, the Ottomans, oh, sorry, before the British occupation of Palestine, is something really exciting. The idea that there were Palestinian communities settling in the Andes or the Mexican uh, desert in the eighteen sixties and nineties, uh, and that they maintained connections to Palestine for decades before the British and, and the British and French mandates were installed in the region, uh, I think speaks significantly to just how. Uh, how significant that this this history of migration and diaspora studies is to our understanding of Middle Eastern communities. It's so the Middle East was never just this uh, static place that uh, that lacked uh, mobility or lacked sort of interest in the rest of the world. It was always actually part of um, of of other parts of the world. Uh, an ex- of ex- exchange, both material and immaterial exchange of uh, of settlement, of of expansion. Um, Some would even say that, uh, you know, if you think about it, the, the the Palestinian pioneers who settled the northern Mexican frontier were in many ways doing what the the Europeans did when they settled the great, the West uh, or a sort of, they went west in search for gold. Uh, so it's this kind of this pioneering, adventurous spirit, uh, we can call it colonization as well, um, or in some capacity, uh, that t- to inject Palestinians into these huge narratives that span the globe is something I think extremely exciting um, and, and speaks to the idea that, you know, Palestinians were always part of global patterns. Uh, in terms of the source material, you know, after, as I mentioned, the first question, the, the first sources that really struck me were these that I found in the in the state archives in Jerusalem, uh, the petitions and letters and uh, pleas to both the the government of Palestine in Jerusalem, but also to the Arab executive um, in Jerusalem, uh, headed at the time by uh, Musa Qazam Husseini. Uh, these migrants sending tens and hundreds of letters begging him and the Arab executive to support them in their struggle against British, um, unfair British um, uh, citizenship restrictions. Um, so the next set of, of sources after I found these these, these few in, in Jerusalem was, was was to go to London. And what I did the archive there for, for about two months was, was collect, was really try to piece together what the internal communiques and internal discussions were like amongst British officials. Um, you know, we had the 1925 Citizenship Law or the 1925 Palestinian Citizenship Order in Council, uh, which was established in order to ensure the, uh, in order to facilitate the inmigration and naturalization of Jewish immigrants uh, into Palestine. Um, that document was there in the archive, so it was, it was important to see it and read it. But then the communiques and the, the discussions between different officials, whether the Home Office, the Colonial Office, office uh, or the Foreign Office, uh, what how were they discussing, um, how were they deciding to, to reject tens of thousands of applications for, for uh, pal- Palestinian citizen sh- uh, citizenship by Palestinian migrants in the Americas? What were the excuses they used? What were the... Uh, what was the logic used? And um, so a big chunk of the book that we mean about two chapters are really just about looking at internal British communication, uh, a lot of it declassified after, you know, a certain number of years. Um, and what it pointed to was this was blatant racism, <laughs> to to put it bluntly um saying quite bluntly oh no 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 if we had to choose between a jewish immigrant and a and a palestinian immigrant we would certainly take the, the jew they're much more advanced technologically and economically and intellectually than than these backward palestinians and so on um but also saying also saying um palestine doesn't have the capacity to to withstand this many this many immigrants returning to settle the land so we need to prioritize jews since we have this promise and we made to the zionists um there's also this this whole language of saying well are they even palestinian they left as ottomans uh, and now that the ottoman empire is dissolved they should go seek uh you know nationality or or residency from the, the host governments where they are so mexico chile united states and so on even though international law the treaty of lausanne in 1923 conferred nationality of Palestinian nationality on on all residents of of the land between the river and the sea, wherever they were across the world, so long as they uh, could prove it through blood, through birth, or through residency. So, you know, these tens of thousands of migrants could have could prove it uh, certainly through blood, uh, through having parents and grandparents born there, which qualifies you for for the nationality of that land. And many of them had had been born in Palestine. Uh, none of them, of course, could prove it, could require it through residency. Um, so those are those sources. Then finally, I, the last piece was to go to the Americas, to Chile specifically, to find out what and how Palestinians were reacting to this injustice. Um, and that's where I found uh, hundreds, m- hundreds more pa- uh, petitions and pleas to Jerusalem, Geneva, London, and so on, but also... Um, tens of, of periodicals stored in microfilms uh, in different archives but uh, specifically the the Santiago archive uh, of publication uh, excuse me newspapers and uh, there were about 12 uh, 10 or 12 that i found uh, arabic periodicals printed in Santiago in the first half of the 20th century uh, that had never been looked at they'd been you know kept and stored certainly in the archive but no one had uh, had sort of delved into them Um, That was where I found not just so much information about how Palestinians responded and reacted to this injustice, but also I I could glean a lot about the daily lives of of these early migrant communities, how they lived, how they argued, how they uh, made fun of one another, how they viewed their host communities, uh, how they viewed the homeland, um, what they thought about Europe and the West and morality and so on. So, I mean, you know, as most historians will tell you, periodicals uh, really should be <laughs> a field in and of themselves when, when, when looking at in, in archives. Um, so that's the source material used uh, for this book. These these sort of, in each location, sort of three different categories um, of sources.
0: Let me pick up from what you were just talking about, uh, these migrants. So here you have uh, Jerusalemites, uh, migrants from Beijalah, Bethlehem and other villages and towns of Palestine. How did these migrants settle down in their new homes? And also, can you tell us a little bit more about how they experienced the changes that were occurring in Palestine from, let's say, the outbreak of World War I, but also then to the uh, the end of the war, the arrival of the British, the French, which eventually introduced new borders, legal systems, and essentially redesigned uh, the regions uh, that belonged to the Ottoman Empire into new nation states,
1: mm-hmm. so I think I answered the the first question a little bit earlier, but i'll I'll give a little bit more detail about using you know the newspapers that I found. so in terms of how these migrants settled in their new homes for for the most part, most of them came quite poor or quite um you know with with little to their names. So what they did was either um, stay with relatives or 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 friends they would meet on on the boats. Or middlemen they would meet at the ports who would connect them with with, um, other Middle Eastern migrant communities across the continent. So either they would stay for a period of time with them, get established, get on their feet, and then uh, rent a space from which to sell goods and to live. So this is something that the Chilean authorities and Chilean shop owners who were not Middle Eastern, so let's say non-Middle Eastern Chilean merchants, would complain about frequently, saying that these Turcos, these, you know, so most all migrants from um, Middle East were referred to pejoratively as Turcos because they carried Ottoman travel documents. Um, so it was used as, as a slur against them by non by, by non. Non Middle Eastern migrants, they would complain to Chilean authorities that these these turcos uh, are staying open really late, and they are selling. They're staying open on the weekends, which is very uh, improper, given that Sunday is the day uh, of the Lord, for example, uh, or uh, that it's improper and uh, inconsiderate to stay open late because you encourage because so you. it has a competitive, hostile um, uh, approach to, to 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 being neighbors. So if you stay, keep your shop open late, whereas your neighbor shuts at sundown, you're seen as as trying to uh, uh, to gain the upper hand. So amongst one another, these Palestinians and these m- migrant communities would uh, would sort of reprimand each other in the newspapers, saying you know, I know you live in the back of the shop and I know you can stay open all night, but for God's sake, please stop. You can't do this anymore. You're embarrassing us. The authorities are going to shut you down. Uh, We're going to be considered low-class migrants and we want to be considered higher-class migrants. We want to give them a reason to keep us here. So let's respect their traditions. Let's close on Sundays. Let's close early and so on. So you get the sense for how they lived, which is in many ways, how Palestinians in Palestine lived—you uh, know, sort of merchants and um, uh, carpenters and and and, and so on—so uh, they they lived in the backs of their shops, uh, wow. and before long they had you know amassed enough wealth to open bigger shops and then factories, and and then they sort of tapped into these. Uh, wow. uh, well, actually, they quite. Literally dominated these larger uh, economic fields, especially in Chile, industry, banking, manufacturing. Uh, so to this day, uh, Palestinians uh, form the, the some of the wealthiest members of, of Chile's um, sort of elites, um, elite society. Uh, but yeah, they all had very very humble uh, beginnings, in terms of in terms of their homes. Um, in terms of the, the other big question, uh, which is really the book, is is what happens after World War One? Um, and to put it simply, Britain had very different plans for its mandate in Palestine, as we know, um, than it did for its mandate in Iraq, or than the French had in mind for Syria and Lebanon. So what we see that's very that's radically different happening. Um, what we see happening for Palestinians versus. Uh, their Lebanese or Syrian migrant uh, neighbors is that these Palestinians were not allowed to lay any claim to inheritance, to residency, to to property um, back in Palestine. Whereas French and Syrian migrants, by the time the French mandate was installed in Lebanon and Syria, were uh, incur- were excited to have these sort of westernized, wealthier. Uh, residents, uh, would-be residents of Lebanon and Syria acquire French an- a citizenship so that they can then be encouraged to come back and invest in the country, which would, of course, uh, be beneficial to the French mandate. So it became quite clear that, you know, in terms of what kind of citizen subject the British and the French wanted for their mandates, uh, was, well, they both wanted the same thing. They both wanted an ideal Citizen subject, and for Britain, they had that citizen subject uh, set, uh, and that citizen subject was th- the Jewish immigrant, not the one of the forty thousand or so Palestinian migrants um, nice. who lived across the Americas. Uh, so, what this did was, including the partition of of Greater Syria into different territories, what this did was sort of uh, encourage. Separation, separation or division in identification among these, these these, communities in the diaspora. So they couldn't simply refer to themselves as, as Syrians anymore or Arabs. You had to specify uh, in this time period, this very volatile uh, shifting time period in the 20s, uh, whether you were from what is now Palestine, Lebanon or Syria. Uh, and what's interesting here is also that you see British officials when denying Palestinian uh, immigrants' uh, petition or applications for c- citizenship, saying, um, "Well, this person can only present Ottoman travel documents; they cannot present a birth certificate saying they were born in Palestine." It just the birth certificate just says. Uh, you know, Ottoman Syria. So how do we know where they were born, for example? So they have no claim to to being Palestinian, even if they say they're from Jerusalem or Bethlehem or so. So it became really about pinpointing in the naming where you were from in order to prove that. But of course, this was only made this hard for for Palestinians. Uh, Lebanese and Syrians had much less difficulty. And uh, Stacey Ferentold wrote about this in in her book about the same time period, Uh, Syrians, of course, were seen as more uh, troublemakers, let's say, nationalists than the Lebanese. So they had a bit of a harder vetting process to get uh, French-Syrian citizenship over the, versus the Lebanese. But it was really the, um, the Palestinians who had the hardest time uh, securing a, a legal claim to Palestine during this period.
0: I want to pick up on this one, um, even though I really wanted to ask you something about uh, uh, letters and petition, but since you start talking about uh, the uh, uh, Palestinian citizenship ordinance of 1925 and the question uh, that started earlier in 1923 with the Treaty of Lausanne, which essentially uh, ended uh, World War One and so Ottoman citizenship ceased to exist. Uh, I'm curious about something because in the book you make an argument saying that essentially 1925 is a a precursor of 1948 in terms of diaspora and dispossession. And so I was wondering if you can can elaborate a little bit more on on this idea.
1: Mm -hmm. So what this book argues is that The British mandate and British authorities with the tacit support and approval of the League of Nations were able to uh, permanently exclude or permanently exile Palestinian migrants from Palestine through this citizenship ordinance. Uh, So what the Palestinian citizenship ordinance, a 1925 ordinance does is is give away for uh, would-be subjects of the British mandate. a, a, a way to, to become part legally part of, of this mandate. Uh, who qualifies for it, even if the Treaty of Lausanne says that any migrant or any person born on this land but residing abroad has a right to it, there is still a stipulation in the Treaty of Lausanne that it's subject to the consent of the government operating on that land. Uh, so giving the British crown, not the League of Nations, even though the League of Nations is... is uh, should be administering the mandates, giving the uh, the, the king, the king of England, uh, of the United Kingdom at the time, uh, absolute authority, absolute uh, final say on who does and does not get approved for for the citizenship. Uh, this, in many ways, mirrors what happens in in forty eight. In, in some senses, uh, you know, in the Israeli uh, right of return, the law of return, and the subsequent nationality laws. Uh, promulgated over the last seventy-something years, uh, but the Israelis do, upon creating the, the the citizenship laws, the nationality laws in 1950, and 1952, they uh, they reset citizenship, uh, essentially making obsolete any documents prior to uh, the establishment of the state of Israel. So, had any Palestinians who were exiled in '48 held Palestinian, British Palestinian passports? those were no longer recognized under the new state. Uh, This is very similar to what the British did. So the British, even if the Palestinian who had left Palestine as an Ottoman citizen and had that travel document, even if they could present that to the British consulate in Santiago or in Monterrey or in Mexico City and say, here's evidence that I am from that land, that I am protected, my nationality is protected under the Treaty of Lausanne, That government or that consulate had there was no precedent. There was no uh, there was no way to ensure that that government or that you know consular officer would need to approve the application, even though the law said that every person had the right. Similarly, as we all know, we all have a right to return uh, as as exiled Palestinians. But what does that mean in the or what what power weight does that have in the face of a of a governing body, a regime that doesn't want to recognize your right of return, or that has final say in, uh, in who does and doesn't get to be to belong to this land, uh, which really throws a wrench in, in international law and what value does international law have against regimes of power that um, can wield power um, however they choose, irrespective of, of stipulations and Different treaties, um, you know, whether whether it's UN resolutions protecting the rights of refugees in refugee camps across the region, whether it's the Treaty of Lausanne, whether it's the, uh, uh, the League of Nations itself, the text of the League of Nations, um, what the Covenant of the League of Nations, excuse me, what exactly is there in international law to ensure that certain regimes of power will abide by it and. Um, And this is really why I find 1925 so interesting, because there is precedent for exiling and keeping in exile tens of thousands of Palestinians uh, by the time 1948 uh, comes around and and the Zionists, uh, you know, establish the state that they have.
0: Let me go back to um, what I wanted to ask you about, uh, uh, you know, sort of a, a major topic discussed in your book, which is uh, uh, petitions and committees. And so I was wondering how these Palestinian migrants, you know, form committees and send letters and petitions to uh, most European authorities. Can you tell us something about the process, uh, how these committees were formed, petitions written, and who are the people involved? Mm-hmm.
1: So unfortunately I, I did I wasn't able to find much information on, on how these organizations or these cultural clubs and these committees came to be. Uh, but I, I but all formed in the twenties. That's an important uh fact. Meaning upon the creation, upon the ratification of of mandates by the League of Nations in nineteen twenty nineteen twenty twenty-one, um we see a, a, a flurry of activism, of activity in the Mashar, in the diaspora, of all these different committees popping up, with the uh, with the clear intention of remaining connected to what's happening in the homeland. Saying, meaning, um, if, for example, there were uh, conflicting interests between Druze and, and Maronite communities uh, in Lebanon about the best course of action following the demise of, of the Ottomans. Maronites and Druze communities in Michigan wanted in on this discussion. So they would form, you know, the Druze. I, I, this is an example and, and possibly incorrect, but there there was a proliferation or a mirroring of of nationalist mobilization and let's say political activism from the homeland in, in the Mahjar, in the diaspora. So uh, if there were, like, for, for example, um, and it's bidirectional. So if in the Mahjar they're doing... They are creating committees and, and organizations to protect the rights of, of Palestinian communities. They're also forming these, these organizations and these groups in Palestine. Certainly not, not across the board, but uh, the more significant ones, yes. So uh, what we see is occurring in the early 20s across in Mexico and Chile, especially is the formation of these Palestinian uh, committees, these Comité uh, Hijos de Palestina, uh, Centro Society Palestino, Club Sirio Palestino, uh, Club uh, or um, Syrian Palestinian Youth Club, which was which was a, a strong, a very important one in, in in Santiago, 1922, 1924. The Club Deportivo Palestino was formed in 1920, the famous football club uh, in Chile today. Uh, so these groups popping up in response to uh, Balfour Declaration, essentially Britain's clear plan to hand over Palestine to the Zionists. Uh, in response, these these groups forming in defense of, of Palestine. What's interesting is that we see a lot of Syrio-Palestino, meaning that we know Syria to have, Damascus to have been the hub of, of Syrian Arab nationalism uh, around the Treaty of Versailles, uh, uh, having sent a delegation to Versailles representing all residents of greater Syria. Uh, this connection between Syria and Palestine uh, even though for these migrants themselves, was, was, these were not mutually exclusive categories. You could be Palestinian and Syrian because you're, you form the southern region of Syria. Um, but in direct response to the British authorities, for example, saying you're either Syrian or you're Palestinian, you can't be both. Uh, this, as a result of the partition of 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 Greater Syria into mandates, uh, so you see this flurry of of organiza- of, of groups uh, popping up across the, the diaspora. Their only way of communicating, their only legal, uh, let's say, uh, legitimate and an accepted way of communicating with their distant overlords being, you know, the British and French mandate authorities was through petitions. That was the only uh, way they could make demands and so on. But petitions themselves, I mean, Susan Peterson and Natasha Wheatley uh, have written extensively about the petitioning process during throughout the League of Nations years. Um, petitioning was a very specific process. I mean, if your petition was to be considered by a consular officer in Mexico City or in Santiago or in... Um, um, Buenos Aires or, or or Sao Paulo, you really had to have done your your research. You knew you had to have found a translator. You had to have received a certain number of signatures. You had to have uh, sort of couched the language in this very respectable rhetoric. You know, you, you can't speak to your uh, the, the the high commissioner for Palestine uh, in uh, you know you can't express yourself freely. You have to show deference and and. Uh, and respect to this authority. So what you find in the the petitions is this tension, really, where the petitioners have to show respect for this ruler. They have to show not just respect, but gratitude for having liberated Palestine from the Ottomans and having given them their freedom. But they're also here to tell you, we uh, we are watching you. We... We know that you are uh, contravening international law. You are abusing your power. We demand redress. If you don't, uh, you know, sort of, uh, <clears throat> if you don't afford us and, uh, our rights, we will go to the League of Nations. I mean, these, these little, little threats, these sort of, uh, <coughs> excuse me, subversive petitions are really the, sort of what's so exciting about these, these documents. For them to have made it, to Jerusalem and made it to Geneva and made it to London means that that means two things means that they were written quite well. It also means that the consular offices in these these different migrant hubs uh, were moved by what they were hearing. And in fact, it turns out that, that yes, yeah, so in, in some uh, newspapers, um, that uh, in some communications between migrant communities across the Americas, they would recommend to each other which consular officer to to go to visit because they uh, were sympathetic with our cause, right? So it wasn't that the entire British establishment was out to keep these Palestinians uh, from returning. It was that certain, the high commissioner certainly, and certain uh, members of the British sort of colonial enterprise had something in mind for Palestine, and there was no room for these migrants, even if they had a valid reason to, to petition and protest. Um, so that's why petitions are so are so interesting: is that they're really they're couched in the language of international law; they're completely appropriate documents. They're not revolutionary. They're not saying get out of our land. They're not saying give us back. You know, they're part and parcel of the structure uh, structures of the League of Nations, and which includes the mandates. Uh, and that actually is in many ways why it was so easy for for the british mandate to to just simply ignore them because petitions could easily be dismissed. there was no way there was no reason for um British or French authorities to be intimidated by petitions. they were simply a way for these mandated colonized subjects a way for them to communicate with their with their colonizers Uh, but read in a certain way we can see them as uh modes of group uh and national development i mean the fact that these groups of palestinians are coming together collecting signatures drafting these letters traveling to mexico city from Monterrey or from iapel in 300 kilometers north of santiago all the way to santiago uh, down you know the slopes of the Andes to deliver these petitions means that something was happening socially amongst these 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 groups of people, these three hundred plus people per petition for them to feel connected and 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 vindicated enough that this is a justice we must pursue, and we will do it no matter what so this had to have repercussions on the community in terms of self fashioning self identification uh, and so on and that's that's really how it goes from a history of Syrian migration to a history, or Ottoman Syrian Ottoman, or Arab migration to a history of Palestinian diaspora formation, um, uh, in the context of of the uh, interwar international law.
0: I was just wondering about something uh, when you were talking about it that um, you know a lot of historians would call this period, and probably myself too, the Wilsonian moment but actually we should probably rename it via the petition moment, because if I think about uh, the amount of petitions Palestinians and Syrians and Lebanese wrote, uh, for instance, uh, when the King Crane Commission visited the Middle East, it's massive. And they all followed certain rules and uh, language. They were absolutely convinced that this petition might have changed their situation. It didn't, but if anything else, it told... It tells us about the feelings and about how people saw themselves and understood the international uh, construct of that period in time. Exactly. I have a question about chapter four and chapter five of your book. Um, In this chapter, you're talking about Palestinians, particularly Mexico and Chile. And so I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about these communities and uh, how you know, their experience was similar and different, and how they related to each other and obviously to Palestine. Perhaps also you can tell us something more about the famous uh, football club, uh, Club Palestino, Club Palestino, better saying, um, that is based in Chile, given that we are in the uh, um, time and moment of a football World Cup uh, played in Qatar at the moment. I'll do my best
1: to, 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 to speak to to the Club Deportivo Palestino but you know as, as a historian I'm, I'm mostly stuck in the past but um, you know if, if, if we're to compare Mexico and Chile in terms of settlement I, I so I in fact Honduras per capita has the highest number of Palestinian migrants uh, relative you know per capita but uh, Chile today has the largest number of Palestinians outside of the Middle East Mexico, uh, has a very large number of Palestinians, but uh, tracing them out of or sort of weeding them out of of the larger Lebanese or Syrian migrant communities in mexico is is harder. This is mostly because the 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 more successful communities to have settled Mexico and established themselves as Middle Eastern migrant communities with the Lebanese, uh, much like in Brazil and Argentina. Or Argentina is the Syrians. If Lily Balfet's book, Argentina uh, Argentina in the Global Middle East, I believe is the title. is, is is an excellent example of just how influential Syrian communities from Haleb, from Aleppo, from Damascus, and so on, were in, in establishing themselves in, in Argentina. As similar books have been written for, for the Lebanese, certainly. Uh, and it's it's high time uh, similar books are written for the Palestinians. And this is why uh, Chile is a particularly interesting example, um, because like in Mexico, the, the Chile receipt, the Palestinian communities in Chile managed to um, to emerge the most sort of uh, influential and powerful economically and politically. Um, why, let's say, why in Chile and why not in Mexico? Well, really, this goes back to settlement patterns. And, and what we see coming, what we see is that, uh, let's say, a, a migrant from Bejala or Bethlehem arrived in Santiago in 1890, established a small shop, went back and forth to Palestine for decades up until... You know World War one um, brought back neighbors, brought married, had children so on endogamy was the the way of doing things so you went back to your community you found someone either from your village your town or from within your religious sect and you brought them back with you This was similar across most of, of the Middle East so it's happenstance it's really simply coincidence that uh, well there's also topographic, uh, similarity between uh, Chile and and Palestine, uh, and what we talked about earlier, economic uh, comp- wanting to avoid economic competition. So the Lebanese had already settled, let's say certain parts of Mexico, then the Palestinians will not go there. They will go maybe further north to Monterrey and Saltillo, where markets that haven't been tapped, and subsequently their relatives will start moving there as well. So then you have these Palestinian-Mexican communities emerging and so on. Um, but of course in us in in terms of discussing these these migrant settlement patterns the only reason we speak about them different uh, as parsed out internationalities is because of the mandates this wouldn't have been necessary had, had you know 100 years ago had these uh, mandates not formed and then forced these 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 demarcations um in terms of mexico and settlement in mexico i would recommend uh, audience to read Teresa Alfaro Velcamp's book, So Far From God, So Close to to Heaven. Uh, And and, um, uh, Camila Pastor's, Pastor de Maria y Campos' book on on, on French, excuse me, Lebanese migrant um, communities in Mexico during the mandate period. I hope I got the titles right. But in any case, these books really delve into these, these settlement patterns for these communities, mostly for the Syrians and Lebanese. The Palestinians had similar narratives, of course, in terms of arriving connecting with other Arabic speaking migrants, receiving credit lines, peddling goods and, and selling them all across the continent. Um, for Palestinians, this occurred in the northern uh, parts of, of, of Mexico. Uh, in Chile, this was also a very similar pattern of migration, but of course, Chile is a very vertical country. So what you see uh, for Palestinian uh, communities up outside of Santiago and Valparais, so the two hubs of uh, Chilean commerce and, and settlement in this early period, is that they form a line from uh, villages in the mid-Andes, such as Iapel and Ovalle, all the way down to Concepcion and Los Angeles, and, uh, also, so sort of between five and four and five hundred kilometers on either side of of Santiago, you also have some Palestinian communities that pop up in the Atacama Desert, which I found out through through the research. Um, they're really all over, but the hubs are those places where either the climate is suitable, it is it is it is safe politically. Uh, there's less competition and and more up uh, more. Um, Opportunities for assimilation economically and culturally in the uh, uh where they are. Uh, the Club Deportivo Palest- Palestino was formed in Santiago in 1920 by Palestinian migrants. Um, that's in fact as much as I know <laughs> about, about the team, but today it is one of Chile's most uh prestigious football uh, clubs, and uh, one of the things that they they tend to be very proud of is the fact that any number one on a jersey is is in the shape of historic Palestine. And of course, this has caused uh, a lot of issues, both with the Jewish community in Chile and also with, um, uh, with lot, larger football uh, federations. Uh, but the Club Deportivo Palesti- Palestino, uh, there's also the Club Social Palestino, uh, also in in Santiago, I went there and I attended cultural events there. You enter that space, and it's really a hub for all these uh, descendants of Palestinians to come and uh, you know eat and and dance and and swim and have their kids play football and and run around in gardens and playgrounds and so on. Um, it felt like i was I was. At the national, the Orthodox Club here in Amman, which has a similar sort of vibe about it, it's uh, it's certain families from Amman that love to go there in the summers and and enjoy uh, you know each other's company and enjoy a drink and enjoy uh, watching their kids play um, and so on. So these 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 are very much sort of uh, you know mirrored uh, realities across the Atlantic and across these continents. And of course, there are similar Lebanese clubs, Syrian clubs. in fact, in the 20s, there was a Humsi club and a Halabi club that emerged in Santiago. Uh, again, at the time, this wasn't about necessarily patriotism and nationalism, Halabi versus Humsi, No, it was, it was the fact that if you are from Halab, here's a club you could join to incentivize you to, let's say, send money. This was a big reason remittances were, were huge, were a huge mainstay of Middle Eastern economies at, in this time. So remittances from migrants making it big in the Americas. If you're just going to send money to Syria, how do you know it's going to go to Homs? How do you know it's going to go to Jerusalem? How do you know it's going to go to Bejala? So these groups would pop up to represent these these different um, uh, you know, sort of uh, places back home. Um, so that's what I found to be interesting about uh, Settlement patterns and uh, how they remained connected to Palestine, promoting uh, Palestinian issues and so on. Uh, one other thing I found really interesting was the 1927, I believe, earthquake in Palestine. Was it 1927? This, this rallied Palestinians in the diaspora significantly. Uh, the newspapers were just... Uh, going crazy with this news, we have to send money, we have to send money, and here's this organization sending this amount, and here's this other one sending this amount. It was all going to Palestine, it was all going to different um, communities in Palestine, but the the number of groups that popped up in the diaspora, you know, send money to Bethlehem, send money to Bejala. here's one to Ramallah, here's one to Nablus, here's one, you know, was was, uh, was very interesting.
0: I have a couple more questions and one is very much about uh, sort of the, the, the last chapters of the book and um, I want to pick up on what you talked about earlier about uh, periodical journals and magazines uh, which are you know very important materials for us historians but also you know for people to spread information and obviously to uh, uh, sort of create their own opinions and shape their views of the world around them you talk about this fascinating relationship of these magazines and periodicals produced in Latin America and their relationship with Palestine, the famous uh, newspaper published in, in Palestine. And so I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about this relationship and how uh, Palestine essentially picked up information about uh, you know these communities abroad and talked about them in Palestine and vice versa, how Palestine... Uh, essentially produce material that was then picked up by communities abroad and uh, this information was spread uh, throughout latin america
1: certainly well uh, it's as you mentioned it's a bi-directional um phenomenon so on the one hand uh, philistine was one of the most prominent publications coming out of Palestine at the time, and they were the ones who, and it's, it, its editors were the ones that had the most international reach, let's say. So periodicals across the Americas, also in North America as well, we're receiving a lot of the news um, from Philistines. So, you know, this is very common in across... Uh, diaspora presses is is to republish pieces that are, that are relevant pieces that appeared in in publications back home uh, so Philistine was was the, the major one for many uh, publications in Chile at least um, the, the magazine the periodicals that I examined um, so you'd see a lot of republications of pieces that emerged uh, that were first emerged in in philistine and they would they would mention that certainly at the top of each article you know this is this is uh, a reprint of a piece that appeared on this date in Palestine. Um, that was common, and it had sort of logical reasons uh, to keep readers in Chile and Latin America you know, up to date on what's happening in, in the homeland. Now, um, of course, politically, these newspapers were also very much aligned. There was they were nationalistic. They were all about you know liberating Pal- or not liberating it, but at least giving Palestinians their self determination. Um, and they were secular uh, very importantly which philistine was as well um, what's interesting about why philistine newspaper would choose to republish certain pieces from from diaspora presses uh, was was very political and deliberate and as we know philistine uh, was very critical of 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 the uh f- the famous nationalist parties and the sort of Tribal affiliations of of Palestinian nationalists in the in the twenties and thirties. So let's say the Husseinis and the Shashibis and these sort of bigger families, and how uh, important it was to move past these old regime politics in order to withstand Zionist and British um, oppression and um, sort of the, the, the quashing of the of the Palestinian nationalist movement. So if Palestine newspaper wants to publish a piece to critique Palestinian leadership, which they did all the time. Uh, what better way or what better way to build an argument against, or the need, uh, build an argument for the need to reform uh, the nationalist movement in Palestine? Uh, why not publish pieces that are from Palestinians in Santiago and Mexico and so on, uh, calling for the same thing uh, to sort of pressure and to push this this movement forward. So we see this often in in Philistine newspaper in the 20s, uh, saying, you know, here's a migrant from Salvador who cannot come back because of the British law, but he's writing this piece and we're republishing it because he wants you to know that while he's devastated that he can't come back because of the British citizenship law, he's more devastated about the state of the nationalist movement in Palestine. you know, this certainly a little sensationalist, but um, but really interesting that that Philistine newspaper that had a very specific agenda um, was finding sort of food or fodder for its for its mission all the way in Santiago and and Monterrey and elsewhere in the Americas uh, to pressure nationalist leaders in Palestine to reform to. Um, to do away with old regime politics. Um, so I think it was it was mutually beneficial for these different publishers, or excuse me, these different periodicals. Uh, of course, they were selective in what they would print and reprint. Um, interestingly, also uh, something that Philistine did often was reprint the names of, of those who donated or sent remittances uh, in order, of course, you know, Palestine is, uh, Palestinian communities are quite small at the time. Um, So for for each side, let's say, you know, for Palestinians in Palestine and Palestinians in in Chile to know that, uh, you know, they are being named, their contributions to the Earthquake Relief Fund or to the nationalist movement or to this organization or that is being recognized in this important piece. So it's very important for them to name one another, um, which also goes to show just how sort of small these networks were. Uh, and how important endogamy was to these communities. Khalas, you're from this this family. You know this family. You're from this village. You're from this village. We honor you, and and um, you know we recognize your your sacrifice and your contribution, and so on. So, I mean, newspapers were very much a way for them to build these transnational networks and uh, strengthen um, camaraderie.
0: Lastly, what happened to uh, Palestinians in the diaspora? All of us? <laughs> oh, that would be uh, another book, probably. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So, uh,
1: what's interesting and in, is really depends where you, where you look for them. You know, um, Chile. It's it's funny that Chile continues to be the place where you turn to 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 talk about Palestinian diaspora in the Americas, because it does have such a large number of Palestinians. But that's not the only reason, I think. Um, I can't say much of what happened to Palestinians outside of Chile in terms of historically, their historical trajectory over the 20th and 21st centuries, uh, because many of their narratives, as I mentioned earlier, have been sort of uh, muddled or subsumed in in just Turco, to, they're, khalas, they're, they're Turcos, or they're all Sirios, or they're, they're from the Middle East, Um, And many and I meeting the Palestinians in Chile, many of them would tell me that for them, remembering where they were from and maintaining and being deliberate and explicit about which town or which village they were from is very important for them, unlike their counterparts in different parts of the Americas who, who don't know what village or town they're from. So there was something about Chile, about the community in, in Chile, that kept them very attached to their specific roots, whether they're from this village or that, this family or that, what, you know. So being in Chile specifically, not unlike Mexico, um, felt very much like being in Palestine, it's it's, it's true. Uh, and I, I think this is this has a lot to do with, with the history of Palestine of the 20th century and what was happening. So, so, if we have a, a community, of a, a community in the Americas in Santiago that has a large number of, of of Palestinians, and if this community is continually, let's say, engaged in in remaining connected to what's happening in Palestine, then certainly uh, this community ac- over the course of the 20th century and all the very dramatic events that happened uh, in Palestine is going to continue to remain strongly attached to its Palestinian identity, versus other contexts. Where, let's say, education levels were not as high, where uh, Palest- levels numbers of Palestinians were dwindling rather than increasing as they were in uh, in, in Chile. The other thing is that after forty eight and sixty seven there were large numbers of Palestinians who also went to Chile. Chile was generally very welcoming of of Palestinian refugees. Um, so this constant flow of Palestinians and their constant growth within Chile. Um, really has a lot to do with with why today uh, when you go to Chile and you, you spend time with Palestinians there, you feel very much that this is Palestine or this is a very viable, strong Palestinian community outside or in exile. Uh, the other reason is that for the most part, they are quite successful and quite affluent and uh, they have managed to... Uh, to To be part of, let's say, sort of every up any upper echelon of, of society, whether political or economic or, uh, or cultural. So there are very loud and proud Palestinian cultural events in, being held in Santiago. There are members of parliament that that are proudly identify as Palestinian. Uh, the president today, the new president, is is a is not of Palestinian descent, but is outspoken about uh, support for the Palestinian cause. Uh, These things wouldn't be possible in other regions uh, or other parts of the region uh, where, let's say, the Palestinians were a minority or uh, were less politically, economically active. The other reality about Chile is that Chile is home to a lot of different political and cultural and um, uh, ideological possibilities, Uh, you know, It's a very diverse society politically and we see with the recent referendum how how close it was to really overturning the 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 tide in in chile moving uh moving to uh to leftism but um alas the idea is that palestinians in chile have always had a stake in what happens in chile they've never not been part of the the national fabric of chile which has allowed them to be proud palestinos chilenos uh, Mm. rather than just chilenos which you find in many other parts
0: of the americas this was uh, nadim bawasa author of transnational palestine migration and the right of return before 1948 published by stanford university press in 2022 nadim thank you so much
1: thank you roberto thank you very much